a trusted voice of truth and light. God gave me a gift. I shovel well. I shovel very well. And a rally point for those who've accepted the reality that they are not sheep. We've got a blind date with destiny. And it looks like she's ordered the lobster. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Well, hello there and welcome to the show. Our program is brought to you by great sponsors like MonticelloCollege.org, also the Heather Turner team at Patriot Home Mortgage in St. George, Utah, and by LifesavingFood.com. Got a quick uh, shout-out here, too, to the Loving Liberty Network, uh, welcoming Alex Newman to speak this coming Friday, October 1st, at Liberty Hall in Ogden, Utah. You can go to LovingLiberty.net for more information. We have Eric Peters from EPAutos.com on the line with us. Eric, how are you th- How are you today? I'm really good because resistance is not futile. We're beginning to see some very, very significant pushback uh, against the pushers of the jab as up in New York State, where so many healthcare workers, which is very interesting, healthcare workers, nurses and doctors, are refusing to be jabbed with the air quotes safe and effective vaccines, that the governor is now saying, well, we're going to bring in the National Guard to replace all these people who, who just won't, won't roll up their sleeves for my, for my sake, which is very interesting. And this sort of thing is happening all over the country, and I'm really happy to see it. Yeah, it was interesting to see New York's new governor actually waxing religious yesterday mm-hmm. and then saying, look, God gave us the people who gave us this vaccine. In other words, God gave us the vaccine. And then she actually more or less invited people to please evangelize for those poor lost souls who haven't yet seen the light and, you know, embrace their savior, which by I guess she means the needle. And I, I made the observation they're spreading their religion at the point of a needle. These are the new crusaders. Yeah, that's a very good one. Yeah, we're supposed to uh, genuflect before the holy pharmaceutical cartel. Isn't that something? Uh, these notoriously untrustworthy corporate cartels that have immunized themselves against the liability for the harm that they're causing, which now amounts to many thousands, tens of thousands of people who have been harmed and killed by these vaccines. And somehow uh, we're supposed to worship that in a religious sense. It is, it is, you know, I'm not a particularly religious person, but I think the, the term demonic applies. It's the inversion of what religion is supposed to be. We're now worshiping these corporations, and we're worshiping authority and government, which is antithetical to every understanding that I have of what religion is supposed to be about. It's also curious that for the first time ever, you've got a medicine's ineffectiveness being blamed on the people who haven't actually taken it. <laughs> Isn't that striking? Yeah, on the one hand, these cognitively dissonant people will continue to repeat the lie, at this point we can use that word, that the vaccines are safe and effective. We know they're not effective. Um, they've admitted they're not effective. The whole fact that people have to line up for a second jab and a third jab is telling. The fact that so many people who've been jabbed are continuing to get sick is proof positive that they're not effective. That's the first point. And the second is they're not safe. We've got, uh, we have got more people who have been harmed by this vaccine than any other vaccine that has been put on the market in the history of vaccines. I think that's a correct statement. And it's, it's incredible to me. Ordinarily, a vaccine has to be out in limited trials for about six years before it is anointed with the title of safe, because it takes that long to determine whether there are any ill side effects, because it just takes that long for those things to crop up. And I think the figure is 83% of vaccines that are produced end up being taken off the market or not put on the market in the first place out of concerns for public safety. 
And yet here we've got this vaccine that has killed an unprecedented number of people, thousands of them, and has harmed countless many more. And yet we continue to be told that it's safe and effective and we're supposed to roll up our sleeves to be injected with this toxic stuff. Yeah. And let's get your reaction to the president yesterday as he was getting his third booster and showing Mm -hmm. us by example, you know, how to how to submit. Um, He was asked by a reporter, how many Americans need to be vaccinated for us to get back to normal? Mm -hmm. And answer he answered 97, 98 percent. I think we'll get awful close, Mm -hmm. but I'm not the scientist. Well, I think one thing is for certain. A quarter of the country can't go unvaccinated, unvaccinated and us not continue to have a problem. Wow. Well, and what we what would have, the problem is that there would be a control group, and that's what they are trying to prevent from happening at all costs. It is intolerable to them to consider that you would have a fourth, a third, half the country that hasn't been needled and remains healthy, you know, doesn't have a problem with this, either the virus or obviously any side effects from not having taken this vaccine. And it provides a counterpoint to the people who have taken the jab and who suffer bad effects as a result of having taken the jab or who continue to get sick. It, it undermines the whole narrative. If they can get 98 99% of the country jabbed, then what have they done? They've succeeded in, in making it impossible to determine whether it's the virus or the vaccine that's making people sick. And this is to say nothing of the idea that, oh, for us to get back to normal, as if this is something the president will decide and flip a switch, but we have to get, you know, this this percentage, 97, 98 percent vaccinated. I think you figured this out a long time ago. We are not going back to normal. That was never the goal. Never. I mean, how many times does Lucy have to put the football out for Charlie Brown to kick it? Remember two years ago when they said it's just two weeks to stop the the spread? Then it was... Uh, just uh, uh, just wear the mask. Just wear the mask. It never ends. Whenever they put out something and it's complied with, there's always another thing. And this will never end because sickness will never end. If they have managed to weaponize the idea that sickness, just ordinary sickness, coming down with the flu for a couple of weeks, is somehow an abnormal thing and we can't have a normal society again until there is no sickness anymore. That's insane. And that's what we're dealing with. No, I, I agree. It's it's spooky to me that, uh, you know, uh, who was it, Harvard? Yeah, Harvard just reimposed restrictions following a case increase, and they have a 95 to 96% vaccinated population. So sure. no matter how uh, we, high we that percentage that it, gets, the, the sickness is not going to stop. No, and the really alarming thing at this point is whether we can separate out whether people are getting sick naturally, meaning from catching a bug, whatever the bug happens to be, or whether they're getting sick from the, from the vaccines or are more vulnerable to getting sick as a result of having taken the vaccine. These are very serious and very legitimate questions that I think we absolutely have got to have answered before we proceed any farther. I think the time has come for a hard stop to all of this, and that's why I think a lot of people, including to get back to what we started this conversation with, healthcare workers who know the business, you know, that's what they do, and they aren't refusing to roll up their sleeves for, uh, for transient or petty reasons. They're doing it because they've seen the side effects, and they want no part of it. And that should tell people something. Yep. It's, uh, well, and you had, you had written about, uh, you know, will they ever undiaper? And I'm beginning to think that uh, that mask is exactly what we have seen it to be for a long time. Mm-hmm. That is your outward expression of your submission and your willingness to, to kneel, you know, before those who know what's best. That and also it has become a kind of religious totem. 
the same way that, that people who um, are members of other faith communities will sometimes wear a garment or something to indicate that they're part of that religious community. And I'm not disparaging that. You know, that's, that's, that's part of people's life, and that's fine. But this is a different kind of faith. It's a, it's a secular faith. It's a faith in the so-called experts in this ever-shifting science, as they style it, which isn't science at all. It's, it's this unquestioning dogma that's issuing from people like Fauci and these pharmaceutical cartels who tell you, don't ask questions, just do what we tell you. And unfortunately, there are a lot of sheep out there who are quite willing to don the garment of this new strange religious cult and walk around it, I guess, or walk around with it, I guess, for the rest of their lives. Well, I'm grateful for observers like you who are unafraid to speak out and call it for what it is. Unfortunately, it seems like fear rules the minds of of a majority of people. Well, it rules the mind of a lot of them, unfortunately. And I think there's a strong correlation between the degree of fearfulness and the degree of TV watching. I just filed another one of my little diaper reports as I style them um, about this topic. And if you, you, know, you probably are, have, have this, had this experience as well. People who are glued to the TV oh, yeah. and who listen to this juggernaut of fear that, that is issuing from the TV, they're the ones who are most likely to continue to wear the diaper, even in the absence of any mandates, and who are just obsessed with and terrified of sickness. Whereas other people who don't watch that much TV and who actually see the real world, you know, who go outside and look and see, there aren't bodies stacking up like cordwood. I'm healthy. My kids are healthy. My family is healthy. Everybody's fine. What's everybody freaking out about? The only reason people are freaking out is because they are glued to their TVs and digesting all of this fear that's coming over the airwaves every day. And we're getting a lot of this. I'm hearing from friends from all over the country who know that I live in Idaho, and uh, apparently because Idaho is one of the uh, least vaccinated states, I don't know what that means, Mm -hmm. but the media is beating the drum. Well, you know, the morgues in Idaho, they're running out of room to store all the COVID (laughs) victims. I'm telling you, if it was that bad, you would see people holding up and not going out. They, They would not risk, you know, becoming a part of that, but that's not what's happening. I mean, there are people who are sick, there are people dying. I'm sorry, go ahead. If you, it's sickness pantomime. If you or I or any other person not out of their minds really seriously believed that there was something out there that was uh, seriously potentially fatal, that was likely, uh, you were likely to get it, if you went to a public place, I doubt very much you would go to a public place wearing a disposable face diaper or a, a bandana around your, around your nose for the sake of getting a cup of coffee. It's absurd. They're, they're virtue signaling in the same way that some people will drive a Prius to show how much they're part of this particular faith community. That's a great example. We've got to take a quick break. Eric Peters from epautos.com is my guest. Stay with us. We'll be back just the other side of these messages. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. We're talking with Eric Peters from ericpetersautos.com. And, uh, Eric, I wanted to get your take on the, uh, I, I guess there was one other thing the governor of New York was was going on about yesterday, and that is it looks like healthcare workers being fired for refusing to take the vaccination. Mm-hmm. And uh, the governor was talking about, well, we'll bring in medically trained National Guard troops to take their places. How sustainable mm-hmm. is that kind of approach? I don't know how sustainable it is. You know, it depends on how how far they're willing to push this. And I suspect they're willing to push it all the way. And so the question then becomes, how willing are those of us on the other side of this thing willing to push back? 
And by pushing back, I mean saying no to this and forming our own associations and just not having anything to do with these crazy people, because that's what they are. They're crazy people, whether they're driven uh, out of their minds by fear or they are, are, are driven by a lust for power and control over us. Yeah, it's I, I can't tell you how much I admire those people who are willing to stick their neck out and actually lose their job rather than their self-determination. That can't be easy. And, and I, and I, and it's, well, it's not me- easy. It's certainly not easy. But on the other hand, if you, if you reason this thing out, uh, there's much more at stake than whatever your job happens to be right now. Uh, you know, this is not an abstract thing. It's not even so much, well, I want to take a stand on principle. If this is allowed to stand, America is over. And that's not too broad a statement. It means we will be reduced to the status of livestock that are herded and prodded and made to do whatever the ranchers decide they think we ought to be doing. And no job is worth becoming a cow. No, I, I agree. I'm, I'm also troubled, though, by the, the tendency of people who are sitting back and watching, whether they've taken the jab or not, who sit there and say, well, the people who've lost their jobs, they deserve it. You know, they should not be rewarded yeah, for, for their selfishness, you know. And, and, and I think if, if we're that skewed, that people will actually celebrate another person's um, misfortune that's been forced on them, I don't know where to go from there. We're not forcing well, you. you. We're just taking really... away everything that matters until you give in to what we're telling you to do. That's not forcing you. These people, they've lost, they've lost a, a big part of their humanity. Imagine, imagine somebody who was forced to drive a car that was known to have a defect, a dangerous defect that could result in, in the person who's driving it having an accident and being killed. And then this poor person who was forced to drive that car uh, ends up getting into an accident and ends up being maimed or killed, and then the people laugh and gloat over that. That's the kind of mentality that we're dealing with now. Well, and, and again, you have to ask yourself, if this was a legit pandemic where, oh my goodness, you know, this is so dangerous, we need all hands on deck. I would think mm-hmm. that the last thing that hospitals and health care providers would be doing is firing trained medical personnel over something like not taking the jab. Sure, because again, this is about politics, and specifically it's about submission to authority. That is the driving force behind all of this. It never has been about public health. It has been about mindless servility, about obedience. And that is why, for example, these mask mandates never specified something that was medically useful. They never said, you must wear an N95 or better mask, and it must be worn correctly. It was fine as long as you put a dirty old bandana over your face or wore one of these disposable masks that you can read it right there on the box. It's right on the box of these things. says that these do not prevent the transmission of respiratory viruses. says it right there. As long as you wore it, because the point was that you wear it, not that you wear something that actually serves a medical purpose. You had to wear something that served an authoritarian and psychological purpose. Yep. Well... Okay, I'm ready to move on from this, but again, I'm glad mm-hmm. that, that you are, you know, on the watchtower and you're you're letting people know this is this is not sustainable. Let's talk for a moment about a recent uh, article of yours, new car options that aren't but ought to be. Yeah. Well, you know, the gist of it is you think about it's a tragedy that we have the the ability now in terms of what's available technologically to outfit cars with so many neat things that would actually be desirable that people would like to have and instead so much effort is being made 
to turn them into these universal transportation appliances that pester and nanny you for safety and won't let you enjoy the art of driving. I was uh, motivated by this to think about, well, what what if we could have a free market? And imagine you could have, let's say, an in-car coffee maker. You know, you could push a button and the thing would produce a cup of coffee. That that is certainly technologically feasible. Um, and you can run through the whole laundry list of potential things that would be available if the market were allowed to determine what people could have. You know, people could make their expressed wishes known to the manufacturers, and they would say, wow, look, there's a demand for this. We'll do that. Instead, they get orders from the government in the form of regulations, and then you and I are presented with this Hobson's choice. If you want a car, you're stuck buying all this stuff, driver assistance technology, automated stop-start, tiny turbocharged engines and gigantic SUVs and all the rest of it. And and I was just seeing that uh, snuck into, I, I think it was in one of the new infrastructure bills that's being proposed, they've also uh, thrown in there uh, some kind of a mandate to start a pilot program to track the mileage that people drive. So they're going to track sure, our bank accounts, they're going to track our years. cars. Wow. Yeah. Yeah, and, and that will actually be part of a spider web of restricting your mobility because they are going to attempt to use the electric car to ration your mobility. You know, they can figure out how far you're driving, where you're driving, and are you using too much energy? So today we're going to turn off your smart charger. People don't understand that. They don't understand that, that electric cars are electronic cars that are electronically controlled and that they are connected to uh, a hive mind infrastructure, and these hive mind infrastructures can simply send out a command to turn your electric car off or to adjust its range downward by 50% or 75% at their whim. This is all about control. This is what people need to understand. The common thread running through all of this is control. The pretexts and justifications are sideshows. Don't pay attention to those things. Focus on the control. Here, here. Any good news on the automotive front? I noticed you were doing some some pretty interesting reviews. In fact, uh, one I wanted to, to just touch base with you on, the uh, 2022 mm-hmm. Volkswagen Atlas Cross Sport. I kind of had my mm-hmm. eye on the Atlas. What's, uh, what's the difference between the regular Volkswagen Atlas and the Cross Sport? Well, one less row. Essentially, the Atlas is the biggest Volkswagen that Volkswagen, which was once a small car company, currently makes. It's enormous. You could probably fit two or three old Beetles in this thing. But it might be too big for some people, and that's why they made the Cross Sport, which is built on the same underlying platform. But rather than having three rows, it's got two extra roomy rows, substantially more room in, in the second row, and a lot more room behind that second row for your stuff, your dog, whatever you have to carry. And it also looks sleeker. It doesn't look just like another boxy crossover. They, they did a lot of work to make the roof line uh, more stylish and aggressive looking. And the final thing that I will recommend about this vehicle, you can still get it with a V6. It does come standard with a turbocharged uh, four-cylinder engine like so many other vehicles. However, you can opt for a V6, and that is something that's becoming very, very rare, uh, even among big crossovers these days. Yeah, I'm I'm a little bit uh, sad to see that uh, the V8 engine's days are very clearly numbered. Uh, who was it? Toyota says they're going to po- they're going to pull the the V8 out of their Tundra pickup line. Yeah, well, they've been gone for a number of years from cars, by and large. There have been right. a handful of exceptions, like the Dodge Charger and the Chrysler 300. But by and large, V8s have been taken out of mass market um, for at least 10 years now. They were generally only available in, in higher-end luxury brand cars for a lot of money, more money than most people could afford. But trucks, being trucks, uh, hung on to the V8 for as long as they could. But unfortunately, even they 
are under this regulatory onslaught that makes it very, very difficult for them to offer a V8, notwithstanding that most truck buyers want a V8. So uh, in order to maintain the power and the performance, what they've done, just like the cars, car engines in cars, they've gone with smaller engines, in the case of trucks, generally V6s rather than four-cylinder engines, with two turbochargers and all the related peripherals to maintain the power of the V8 while getting slightly better gas mileage and lower carbon dioxide emissions. That's the other god that we Hooray! have to worship in addition to the holy face diaper is, you know, yeah, you know, we, we have to pray before the Gaia god and, uh, and, and it's spewing of carbon dioxide. Well, Eric, I'm sorry to see that we were up against the clock here, but uh, love to visit with you no each week as always. Uh, where can people find your website? Uh, it's epautos.com, the web's best libertarian gearhead site. And we have finally cured all of our glitches, by the way, so come on down and have a look. Fantastic. I'll have a link in the show notes at thebrianhydeshow.com. Eric, looking forward to talking next week. Ditto, Brian. Thank you. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. All right, welcome back to the show. Just a quick shout-out here for the Heather Turner team at Patriot Home Mortgage. Sure appreciate them being a sponsor of this program, and I hope that you will send some love their way, either by uh, dropping them a note, letting them know that their advertising message has reached your ears, or let them get you that VA loan or that traditional loan or reverse mortgage or maybe refinance your existing home loan. This is of particular importance to my listeners in the great state of Utah. It's a hot real estate market, and the Heather Turner team at Patriot Home Mortgage has the experience in the lending industry to help you get the loan you need, and most importantly, without delay. Heather's NMLS ID is 715386. Patriot Home Mortgage is an equal housing opportunity lender. You can contact Heather at 435-703-4522. Her office is at 619 South Bluff Street in St. George, Utah. Couple quick notes here, and these are these are kind of disturbing things, but uh, these are things that I would hope you would be aware of. Um, you think about how tough it is to get a factual take on current events, and then consider the chilling effect on free speech if government officials, particularly the national security state, were to begin to in, to designate investigative journalists as information brokers. Because an information broker might be working with other enemies of the state. You understand this? That's the chilling precedent the U.S. government has tried to establish by actually sussing out the idea of kidnapping, imprisoning, or assassinating people like Julian Assange or Glenn Greenwald. This is an article from Yahoo News. And it talks about kidnapping, assassination, and a London shootout inside the CIA's secret war plans against WikiLeaks. And I, I don't know that I was uh, I was aware of some of the stuff that was going on in, uh, you know, in London where uh, where Assange was holed up in the Ecuadorian embassy. And if you remember when they hauled him out of there a few years ago, it was ugly. The article says in 2017, as Julian Assange began his fifth year holed up in Ecuador's embassy in London, the CIA plotted to kidnap the WikiLeaks founder spurring heated debate among Trump administration officials over the legality and practicality of such an operation. Now, of course, mainstream media tries to make this as all about Trump. This is the Trump thing. This is not just Trump. 
Okay, Trump was a symptom. He was not the root of the problem here. The national security apparatus is the biggest part of the problem, and it's something that does not change regardless of who is in the White House. So some senior officials inside the CIA and the Trump administration even were talking about killing Assange, going so far as to request sketches or options. How can we assassinate this guy? Now, discussions over kidnapping or killing Assange occurred at the highest levels of the Trump administration, said a former senior counterintelligence official. There seemed to be no boundaries. But it needs to be pointed out. It was Trump's lawyers, Trump's attorneys, advising him that said, don't do this. This is a really bad idea. And anybody who tries to portray this as, well, you know, Trump was the one uh, because he was in control of these intelligence agencies. Um, Trump was at odds with the intelligence agencies for the better part of his presidency. I mean, after all, they were being actively used to try to bring him down. Russiagate, anyone? Yeah. The conversations were part of an unprecedented CIA campaign directed against WikiLeaks and its founder. And the agency's multi-pronged plans also included extensive spying on WikiLeaks associates, sowing discord among the group's members, and stealing their electronic devices. Pretty interesting stuff. Because if you remember, Julian Assange embarrassed U.S. officials because he pulled the curtain back on some of the dirty dealings and ugliness that was going on under official government, uh, you know, auspices. And the idea that they would, would portray him as just an information broker is an opportunity for those within that, uh, that national security apparatus to start treating anyone who has information that is politically inconvenient to those in power to be treated like an information broker or somehow, you know, a conduit through which information can be, can be given to the enemies of the state. In, a, in essence, they become an enemy of the state. Craziness. I'll include a link in the show notes. You can check it out for yourself. Just understand, it's hard enough today to get a, a solid take on things, but to, to sit there and to portray, you know, independent journalists, and I look at Glenn Greenwald as one of the best of the best in this regard. That puts a target on him as well. You may disagree with these journalists. You may disagree with the fact that they're calling out government and saying you shouldn't be doing that. I would much rather deal with those inconveniences than have peaceful, uninterrupted, you know, tyranny or oppression because nobody felt like they could speak up. All right, here's another story. And this is, this. if nothing else, I mean, I, I love my listeners in California, but... You may want to relocate. <laughs> I'm telling you, this is this is bad news. This is from Brian Doherty from Reason.com. California will let violence prevention researchers know that you have a gun. It says, uh, California Governor Gavin Newsom signed into law last week AB 173, which, among other things, gives various academics, most of them very likely to be hostile to private gun ownership, access to all the information California collects about the state's buyers of guns, gun parts, and ammunition. Now, those of you who've lived in California, you understand. They're, they're, I don't know of another state that has stricter gun laws. Maybe New York, maybe New Jersey, but California wants you to get their permission, the state's permission, before you buy so much as a round of ammunition. They really don't like the idea of their people having the means to defend themselves. 
And this law that was just passed and signed into law by Governor, uh, by Governor Newsom says that an assortment of government info about gun possessors shall be available to researchers affiliated with the California Firearm Violence Research, Research Center at UC Davis for academic and policy research purposes. Furthermore, at the department's discretion, information collected pursuant to this section may be provided to any other nonprofit bona fide research institution accredited by the United States Department of Education or the Council for Higher Education Accreditation for the Study of the Prevention of Violence. Now, the law also insists material identifying individuals shall only be provided for research or statistical activities and shall not be transferred, revealed, or used for purposes other than research or statistical activities and reports or publications derived therefrom shall not identify specific individuals. Now, Brian Doherty says still, whether or not the resultant research is published names a specific person, How many gun owners do you think are going to be thrilled that people in the business of coming up with reasons why no one should be allowed to own guns can easily know their name, address, and all the weapons, parts, and ammo they bought legally? And what's more, nothing in the law as written applies any stern level of oversight or punishment over misuse of that information. Yeah, I could see that being misused in a big way. Now, California gun owners have long had reason to be suspicious of the amount of information about gun purchases that the state insists on collecting and saving. Because these have, after all, led to literal attempts at confiscation of certain once legal, now not, weapons. Now, in 2018, uh, California passed the Consumer the California Consumer Privacy Act, which guarantees your right to delete your personal information possessed by businesses and make them not sell your personal information. But that right to keep your information to yourself doesn't apply when those snoops work for the government. Apparently, Roy Griffith Jr., legislative director of the California Rifle and Pistol Association, wrote a letter to Gavin Newsom asking him, please don't sign this law. In fact, Griffith pointed out that by his read, AB 173 is in direct violation of the California Constitution, which states in Article 1, Section 1, all people are by nature free and independent and have inalienable rights. Among these are enjoying and defending life and liberty, acquiring, possessing, and protecting property, and pursuing and obtaining safety, happiness, and privacy. In all... California Constitution names privacy as a fundamental right of all Californians five times. Now, with this law, anyone working in or near any academic violence prevention work with an axe to grind or who has fallen from grace would know that some named person with X number of guns lives at 123 Boogie Woogie Avenue in Sunnyvale. And that may not be a situation conducive to security for the citizen at that address. Griffith, uh, who used to work in California law enforcement, thinks gun owners' names, addresses, numbers of weapons and parts, and amount of ammunition are data police should need warrants to obtain in any state that alleges to respect privacy. And they certainly shouldn't spread it to researchers suspicious of private gun ownership, he says. Dang. Talk about the noose tightening. See, I I know there are some people, especially where I live in Idaho, there are folks who have some very serious... uh, Serious grief about the idea of of Californians coming in and taking over the state. But I don't think I would blame them for wanting to get the heck out, especially if you take your rights seriously. If you're a gun owner, yeah, I think I would be making feet for the door simply to get away from that kind of control and data gathering. 
Come on, of course it's going to be abused. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. Just a quick update to uh, my sponsor, LifesavingFoods.com. They are a ReadyWise distributor for ReadyWise uh, food storage. Freeze-dried and dehydrated foods, so simple you just have to add water. 25-year shelf life. Last week, we had an incredible special for my listeners, 20% off at checkout if you use the coupon code HYDE, H-Y-D-E. And I was, I was sad to tell you that that, uh, that special had expired. I talked to Kendall Whiting, who is the owner of LifesavingFood.com. He told me, Brian, let's, uh, let's keep this thing going. Tell your listeners I will still give them a 20% discount at checkout if they use the coupon code HYDE. What a sweet time to make that happen. Um, I don't know if you've looked around, have you seen some of the breakdowns in, in the supply chain, but it's crazy how many empty store shelves you're starting to see in various stores. And I don't know if you've seen the number of container ships sitting off the uh, uh, outside of the Los Angeles Harbor. I don't know what the deal is, why they can't get them unloaded or whatnot. And I'm not telling you that you need to panic. You need to do this right this second. Don't think, just sign, you know. Think about it, but understand that uh, the system as it is currently constituted is on kind of shaky ground. And it would make sense if you can put aside some food and have that self-sufficiency. It would really make sense to do so. If you can save 20% in the process, by the way, this is going to get you a better price than if you went to ReadyWise themselves. So give it a thought. Check it out. There's a link in the show notes at com, And uh, that 20% discount, that could help you make up for some lost ground there. So here's here's the note I would like to uh, to end this hour on, and that is uh, the problems confronting us can seem overwhelming, and of course partisanship causes us to lose perspective. I found this wonderful essay by Amina Ilonik, reminding us that the single biggest battle that any one of us will win is the one in which we find the courage to be good. In fact, if you think about it historically, that is the dynamic that has led people out of tyranny if you want to be let out of tyranny you've got to have you've got to be a good person you've got to have spiritual courage which includes you know being a good person and living up to the principles of liberty that's the only thing that will make the difference actually i shouldn't say that that's the thing which leads people to turn to god which is the only thing that makes the difference but that's another subject for another time this article by amina milonic talks about uh, how only the strength of the human spirit and God can lead us out of any totalitarian system's cruel labyrinth. And I love that she talks about a movie, which I saw a few years ago, but I highly recommend to anybody who really wants to get a great character study in this, because it's based on a true story. And it's called The Lives of Others. It uh, is a dramatic and beautiful exploration of the East German state and its cruelty. This is a film made back in 2006, so it's been around for a little while. But it's, it's remarkable. And the, the story as it unfolds shows you the, the evil and the, the callous indifference 
to other people's happiness and, and their and their just self-determination that was at the heart of that German system, East German system, I should say. Before we go there, I want to share with you, there's a quote here from Alexander Solzhenitsyn. When he accepted the Templeton Prize back in 1983, during his speech, he said this, quote, Over half a century ago, while I was still a child, I recall a number of older people offer the following explanation of the, for the great disasters that had befallen Russia. Men have forgotten God. That's why all this has happened. And he says, if I were asked today to formulate as concisely as possible the main cause of this ruinous revolution that swallowed up some 60 million of our people, I could not put it more accurately than to repeat, men have forgotten God. That's why all this has happened. Now, Solzhenitsyn, of course, was speaking about Russia, but the explanation could be applied to decades of communist totalitarianism in East Germany. People lived in misery and despair, but mostly in fear from being hunted and interrogated by the East German Stasi. This ministry was known for its interrogation tactics, which primarily included psychological warfare. The interrogator broke down the prisoner, often induced by forced sleep deprivation, used family members as blackmail for information, infinitely repeated the questions till the prisoner would give in and confess to being guilty. And these crimes usually consisted of helping someone cross the border between East and West Germany or speaking out against ideology, especially in the case of artists and intellectuals, and showing any inclination toward thinking that did not align with the socialist ideology. Now this brings us to the the beautiful story of the lives of others, which was uh, directed by uh, Florian Henkel von Donnersmark. And it focuses on the intertwined lives of a playwright, Georg Dreiman, an actress, Christa Marie Seiland, and a Stasi officer, Gerd Wiesler. Now, Dreiman writes good plays that align with socialist ideology. As such, he's not suspected by the state to be a threat of any kind. Judging from his interactions with state officers who frequent the theater and watch his plays, why, he might even actually support socialist principles. But Weisler's commanding officer, Anton Grubitz, thinks Dreiman is absolutely safe, but he's convinced that we need to keep an eye on this guy. So he orders surveillance headed by Weisler. Dreiman's apartment and phone were bugged. Weisler listens into his conversations from the building's attic. And the intention is to gather as much information as possible that will implicate Dreiman for a very simple reason. It would be a better career move for both Grubitz and Weisler. In the meantime, one of Dreiman's friends and colleagues, Albert Jerka, commits suicide. Jerska, rather, is his name. He'd been blacklisted and was unable to direct any plays, and that prompted Dreiman to explore the number of suicides that occur in East Germany and why the details of suicides are suppressed by the Stasi. So he arranges to write an expose on the subject for the West German magazine Der Spiegel, but it had to be typed on a West German typewriter in order to conceal the source. This is one of the remarkable things about the movie is they, they show you that if, if you were a writer of any kind in East Germany, you had to have a serialized typewriter so that the authorities could track specifically which typewriter this writing came from. This was before computers, of course. Dryman continuously suspects that the actress, Krista Maria, with whom he's in a relationship, might be an informant for the Stasi. So this creates fear, distrust, and suspicion. And the entire state system is based on fear and suspicion. And as such, the society is unable to flourish in any way. 
The only people who in some sense are rewarded in this system are those who, though not necessarily believers in it, have mastered all the pretense of it in order to gain a more secure career within the system itself. In other words, those who thrive have to be willing to destroy a person within the system in order to advance themselves. What that means is almost everyone is broken. Krista Marie is addicted to pills. She gives in to one of the state ministers and trades information in order to, to fuel her addiction. In her words, she's nothing without the system. Dryman, in the meantime, as a, as a writer, is losing his sense of intellectual stability, knowing that no amount of words written can explain the cruelty of the system. Weasler is also a broken man, but his fragmentation comes from a different part. He's a nobody. He lives alone in a cold, impersonal building in an equally cold and impersonal apartment that's bare, monochromatic, and lifeless. He watches TV solely for the state news and is highly orderly and meticulous. He appears to be without family or friends. But through this movie you see something start to change in him through the surveillance. Through the headphones, he hears Dryman and Krista Marie's joys, humor, even lovemaking. He's intruding on the most private, intimate spheres of, of individual life. And the totalitarian system he represents is the annihilator of being. Anything that's good, true, and beautiful is the enemy of the state. And Weisler knows this ideologically, but as he hears more conversations, he sees more humanity, not just in the subjects of surveillance, but also in himself. He's spying on others, but he's also living for the twisted, evil apparatus of the system. He's not in possession of his own interior self, Weisler realizes. In a, in a moment of experiencing the beauty expressed by someone else, he begins to change. I don't want to spoil it for you, but it is an amazing film. And again, it's based on a true story. Be well worth your while. The bottom line is Weisler becomes a good man. And you have to remember, at the beginning of the film, he was, he was deeply envious of Dryman's freedom, that, that Dryman couldn't be touched by the system. But as Weisler engaged in more and more surveillance, he realized he too could be free, but only if he was good. Freedom comes from the courage to be, to use Paul Tillich's words. From knowledge that no ideological and indeed no political system can offer salvation, only the strength of the human spirit and God can lead us out of any cruel system's labyrinth. Only when we recognize that we are human and that the other person who's standing before us is also human can we truly enter, enter into a real community of authentic individuals and flourish. What this tells me is that any time you spend focusing on becoming a good person will pay dividends in terms of how much freedom you are able to experience personally as well as how much you will inspire others. This is The Brian Hyde Show. A trusted voice of truth and light. God gave me a gift. I shovel well. I shovel very well. And a rally point for those who've accepted the reality that they are not sheep. We've got a blind date with destiny. And it looks like she's ordered the lobster. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Well, hello there and welcome to the show. Hey, whether you're a first-time wrong thinker or a seasoned listener to this program... I just want you to know that I believe the battle for your mind is a real thing. Now, of course, I'm not here to tell you what to think, but I will invite you to think more clearly and independently about the world around us and 
I'll invite you to come and find courage and camaraderie among your fellow wrong thinkers and to claim your heritage as a free individual. So thanks for thanks for joining us on the program today. Our show is brought to you by great sponsors like the Heather Turner team at Patriot Home Mortgage, also Monticello College, and LifesavingFood.com. By the way, I'm going to mention something here. I, I talked to Kendall Whiting, who's the owner of LifesavingFood.com yesterday. Now, he ran a really great special last week on the program just for my listeners. And he talked to me and said, look, this is important enough. I think uh, getting people a solid discount on food storage, whether they're starting a food storage program or whether they're, you know, just adding to an existing food storage program. He is offering a 20% discount for my listeners if you enter the coupon code HYDE, H-Y-D-E, at checkout. Now, this is a pretty significant savings. Even if you went if you went to ReadyWise yourself to buy food storage, you would not get as great a deal as you're getting through life-saving food. So click on the link in, in my sponsor links in the show notes at thebrianhydeshow.com and take a look. This would be a great time to get stocked up. I don't know if you've seen some of the empty store shelves, but it'd be a good idea to have the things you need put aside for that rainy day. All right. Well couple of things here. Oh, one th- actually, two things I need to mention just very briefly because you need to know about this. There are a couple of events coming up that uh, you should be aware of. This is especially for my listeners in uh, Utah and as well as in Idaho. The Loving Liberty Network, which graciously carries this program, is uh, welcoming Alex Newman, who writes for the New American Magazine. He's an award-winning international journalist. He's an educator and author. Very dynamic speaker. He will be speaking at Liberty Hall in Ogden, Utah, this coming Friday, October 1st, 7 p.m. Something you may want to check out. There's more information at lovingliberty.net. I actually have a little flyer included in the show notes as well. And for my friends in southern Idaho, Liberty Fest 2021 will be taking place Saturday, October 2nd. That'll be in Twin Falls at Magic Valley Speedway. I'll uh, I'll include uh, a poster for that a little bit later in the week, but uh, just letting you know, there's some great speakers, Alex Newman among them as well. He's going to be a busy guy this weekend. But if you want to, you want to hear some great like-minded folks, here are two powerful opportunities. LovingLiberty.net will get you the information that you're looking for. So I thought this hour we could take a bit of a deep dive on the concept of federalism, which, believe it or not, is a concept that very few Americans really Understand, and and I'm including myself in this for the longest time. You know, when people talked about federalism, I assume they're talking about, oh, that would be deferring to the federal government in all matters. You know, it's uh, like, I, I guess I was mistaking federalism for what uh, in reality would be federal supremacy. And there are a lot of federal supremacists among us. Trust me, there's <laughs> way more than there ought to be. But uh, understanding what federalism is, that's something that uh, not, a, not a lot of Americans could do. And it's not because they're dumb. It's just, well, number one, it's a concept that's not clearly taught by a lot of people, at least not within the existing system. And secondly, federalism was displaced by nationalism quite some time ago. Abraham Lincoln, I'm looking your way <laughs> as to how that might have happened. But seeing as we're, we're seeing some pushback from states against national government mandates, I'm thinking we may see a collision between the states and the national government in the days ahead. So this would be a pretty good time to learn why states' rights and federal ma- federalism matter 
even if a lot of people don't understand it. By the way, the, the fact it's fallen out of fashion probably has a lot to do with the fact that uh, people don't really understand what it is. One of the best explanations that I've seen is an article written more than 10 years ago by Paul Rosenberg, and it's titled, We Do Not Have a Federal Government. And I want you to bear with me on this. He, he gives a great definition of what federalism is and what it isn't. This is probably where my own understanding of federalism really crystallized, and I was like, oh, hello. <laughs> I've totally been misusing this word for a long time. He starts with the question, what was federal? Now, Paul Rosenberg says nearly all of us use the word federal to refer to the United States national government as distinct from the state governments. But this has been an error on our part. Federal was a description, not a name. It would be fair to use the word federative in its place. In other words, federalism described a type of government, not a particular organization. For example, when we say, my friend has a fast car, we don't think that fast is the car's brand name. It's just a description of the car's acceleration or top speed. Well, federal wasn't like the brand name of the government that uh, James Madison designed. It was a description, like fast. In fact, he says, notice how Madison distinguished between national and federal. But we've lost this distinction, and it's crucial. James Madison, in Federalist 39, talks about how the proposed Constitution, therefore, is in strictness neither a national nor a federal constitution, but a composition of both. He said, in its foundation, it is federal, not national. In the sources from which the ordinary powers of the government are drawn, it is partly federal and partly national. In the operation of these powers, it is national, not federal. In the extent of them, again, it is federal, not national. And finally, in the authoritative mode of introducing amendments, it's neither wholly federal nor wholly national. Now, Madison, six times in that little passage, distinguishes between the terms national and federal. So there's no question he is referring to two different things. Federal is not the same as national. But unfortunately, we no longer use these distinctions because the U.S. government has become entirely national. So we have nothing else to attach the tag federal to. Now, at the founding, as Madison was writing the U.S. Constitution, the meanings of the words he used were these. National powers were those of an independent central government. Federal powers were those that came from the contributions of the states. So Paul Rosenberg says, to be more fully precise, federal meant a union based on a treaty. It described the type of association that was being used. Madison distinguishes between a national and federal um, in, in exactly the same way that we distinguish between a business and a club. And he says, you can see from Madison's words that the structure of the United States government very carefully included federally derived powers. In fact, Madison specifies them as fundamental components. Now, at its origin, the national government was dependent on the states, not vice versa. And when the states shifted their position, the central government, which rested on top of them, had no choice but to move along with them. 
Now, understand, this was not a case where the national government was supposed to shift along with the states. There was literally no other possibility. An analogy would be the surface of the ocean moving up and down as a wave passes. The national government rode on top of the federal arrangement when and where it moved. The national government automatically followed, just like the surface of the ocean moving with a wave. There was nothing else it could do or be. And his point here is that Madison did this on purpose. It was the central controlling and protecting mechanism of his design. In fact, here's what Thomas Jefferson had to say about the original federal structure of the government in the U.S. In a letter to William Johnson in 1823, Jefferson said the capital and leading object of the Constitution was to leave with the states all authorities which respected their own citizens only and to transfer to the United States those which respected citizens of foreign or of other states to make us several or separate as to ourselves but one as to all others. Now Jefferson, as usual, understood the essence of the arrangement, separate among ourselves, but as one toward the rest of the world. The outsiders who saw only the surface of the wave, not the waters underneath. And Jefferson, who was certainly not alone in this, saw the centralizing movement of power from the states to the capital as a great big threat to the American experiment of liberty. We're going to come back to this in just a few moments. But hopefully the light is starting to click on for you like it did for me in recognizing that the word federalism talks about states that have authority over the federal government, which they created. What? Yeah, that's how it works. That's how the power flows from the people to their states to the federal government. Sure doesn't look that way these days, though, does it? This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. Taking a bit of a deep dive into the concept of federalism, what it is, what it isn't, and I think most importantly, why it still matters. Even though we live in a time where uh, th- there is there is federal supremacy, but not in the way that it was ever intended by those who crafted our system of governance. Anyhow, I'm sharing an article here from from uh, the great uh, Paul Rosenberg. We do not have a federal government. We did in the beginning, but it has since shifted to a national government, and and a, a great illustration of this. Yesterday, this was this video was making the rounds. Oh, look, there's the president rolling up his sleeve, getting his third booster shot and explaining that maybe he'll allow things to go back to normal when we get 97, 98 percent of the American public vaccinated. Now, I'm going to ask you to consider where in the Constitution does he have any power to do that? And the short answer is he doesn't. This is, that's an assertion that's just made up out of, well, if I dictated, I am the president, therefore it must be right. It's, it's fantasy. It's delusion. But it would be hard for a lot of people to explain why that is, because they don't understand the concept of federalism. Going back to the great Thomas Jefferson, who saw the centralizing movement of power from the states to the capital, 
as the great threat to the American experiment of liberty. In a letter to Nathaniel Macon in 1821, Jefferson warned, Our government is now taking so steady a course as to show by what road it will pass to destruction. That is, by consolidation first, then corruption, its necessary consequence. Now, he liked to use the word consolidation, as did most of the founding generation. The, the equivalent that we see in our time would be centralization. Think about how much power has been centralized to Washington, D.C., taken from the states, taken from the people, taken from their communities. That's okay. We'll take care of this. We are in charge. We will tell you how many gallons your toilet may use to flush. We will tell you, you know, what you can eat, what you can't, etc. Paul Rosenberg says, as far as the path of destruction, the federal structure of the U.S. government was abolished in steps over time. And certainly the largest factors were the confusion, ignorance, apathy, and fear of the populace, which resulted in mute compliance. But there were a few watershed moments along the way, and the most important of these events included Marbury versus Madison in 1803. This most important of Supreme Court rulings resulted from a complex case involving dirty deals, a politically stacked Supreme Court, and the entrance of partisan politics into the operation of the American Republic. But by the time it was over, the court had ruled against the man who wrote the Constitution, that would be James Madison, and the court claimed the sole right to interpret the Constitution. Here's how it went. The Federalists, Alexander Hamilton being the driving force, organized into a faction, meaning a political party, that organized and pooled their power. Facing a loss of control after the election of 1800, they pushed John Adams to appoint a large group of judges and other officials in the lame duck session before he left office. And Adams complied. Now, these appointments were written for five-year terms, long enough for the Federalists to retain control through the next election. But not all of the commissions could be delivered before Thomas Jefferson was inaugurated. One of these was slated for delivery to a hardcore Federalist by the name of William Marbury. When Jefferson took the presidency, Marbury's appointment was still in the Secretary of State's office. James Madison, who now filled that office, withdrew the appointment for precisely the reasons you'd expect, being based on dirty dealing, and he went about to appoint someone else. Well, Marbury ran to the Supreme Court, which was entirely composed of Federalist appointees, and demanded to be given his office. And in a complex ruling, the court, led by John Marshall, ruled that Madison was wrong to withhold the appointment, but this didn't matter, since the underlying law from 1789 was unconstitutional. Now, the shock of ruling against the author of the Constitution aside, Marbury brought up the important issue of constitutionality. Who decides? Even if we say there is an argument to be made for the Supreme Court to interpret the Constitution, it's not in the Constitution. So Paul Rosenberg says what the court should have said was something like this. Since it has fallen to us to decide such an important matter, we will render our opinion in this case. However, we request of the Congress and the states that they pass an amendment to the Constitution clarifying this issue. Now, there's a great deal of confusion related to Marbury v. Madison that's come down to us. The ruling is universally presented in American schools as crucial to the checks and balances of the U.S. government. 
But Rosenberg says this is deeply misleading. Judicial review, meaning the Supreme's ruling on constitutionality, involves one branch of the national government providing a check on the other branches of the national government. Judicial review provided no check whatsoever on the national government as a whole. The original design of the republic empowered the states to act as checks on the national government. That was the primary purpose of the federal structure. Without it, the national government has no check on its expansion and use of power. Thus, it would seem the states should be the interpreters of the Constitution. After all, it was they who created it. I think one of the better explanations I've heard, too, is that the, the, the creation, the creature, assumed responsibility over itself and took that away from the creator. So part of the federal government, which was called into existence by the states, said, hey, states, don't you worry. I'm going to tell you what's legit and what isn't for these other branches of the government. But nowhere in the Constitution was it authorized to do so. It was a seizure of power. And there's something else that came out of this, too. Rosenberg says there's one last and important thing to mention regarding Marbury versus Madison. And that is the enthronement of rules above reality, of legal wordings over justice. The midnight appointments of the Federalists used rules to manipulate the power structure of the Republic and to secure power by unintended means. Now, James Madison, of all people, understood this. He withdrew Marbury's appointment to conclude the abuse that was being done to his system. But Chief Justice Marshall ignored the injustice and parsed words instead. He went on at length over the distinctions between nominate and appoint and confirm and the fixing of seals. And then Marshall says this, The people have an original right to establish for their future government such principles as, in their opinion, shall most conduce to their own happiness. The exercise of this original right is a very great exertion, nor can it or ought it be to ought it to be frequently repeated. The principles therefore so established are deemed fundamental. Now Paul Rosenberg says what Marshall actually says here is that the American people wish not to work so hard defending their rights, and he's giving them an excuse to be lazy. The rules will take over from here on out. You, the people, you can relax. And it's important that we remember at this point, liberty was the primary issue of the founding of the republic. It was the goal. It's the reason why they founded it. And the Constitution was subsidiary to that. It was a tool, valuable only if it helped to secure liberty. So the reversal of that central order, in other words, liberty now being made subsidiary to the rules, dethroned liberty. Hamilton, Marshall, and the Federalists were political power seekers. To them, liberty was little more than a word that gave them legitimacy, but what they really wanted was power. And Madison's design stood in their way. So Marbury v. Madison pulled it apart. Got to pump the brakes here because we're up against the break, but when we come back, we're going to talk a little bit about how the 14th Amendment was yet another watershed moment in how we transformed from a federal system, a federal system of government, to a national system. And since then, we have just watched our government continue to centralize and to consolidate power to the point where it's, uh, well, top-heavy would be a small understatement. Out of control would be another understatement. Tyrannical would be 
Well, pretty accurate, actually. We'll be back right after this. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Welcome back to the show. Just a quick shout-out here to the Heather Turner team at Patriot Home Mortgage. If you're one of the thousands of people relocating to the Intermountain West right now, you'll quickly discover it's one of the hottest real estate markets anybody here has ever seen. So when you find the home of your dreams, there's a lot of competition, a lot of people waiting to snap it up. You've got to have your financing squared away. This is where the Heather Turner team at Patriot Home Mortgage comes in. For instance, if you are moving to the great state of Utah, they can help you from VA loans to traditional loans to reverse mortgages, even refinancing your existing mortgage if you'd like. The Heather Turner team at Patriot Home Mortgage has the experience, the stability, and the clout to help you get the loan you need without delay. Heather's NMLS ID is 715386. Patriot Home Mortgage is an equal housing opportunity lender. And you can call Heather at 435-703-4522. Or if you're in St. George, swing by 619 South Bluff Street. You'll find her there. By the way, there's also a link in my show notes which is an email link to Heather that will take you directly to her. So I'm sharing this article here from Paul Rosenberg as we're taking a little bit of a deep dive into federalism. And I've already confessed that's a word I misused for a long, long time. I was sure federalism must refer to the primacy of the federal government and the supremacy clause, right? The the federal government is above all, but that's not what it meant at all. It's not the name of the system. It's a descriptor of the system in which the states really called most of the shots except for a very limited area of mutual interest which the federal government had delegated authority given to it to handle. Of course, this uh, arrangement has been tipped on its head, and Paul Rosenberg is explaining some of the reasons why. Marbury versus Madison was a big one. That was the first attempt and a successful one by the federal government to shrug out of its collar and to get off its leash. The next big event was the 14th Amendment in 1868. And the 14th Amendment filled a hole in the Constitution by declaring that no state could trample an individual's rights, such as the southern states had done by enslaving black people. Now, there was an earlier precedent for this, but the amendment was probably necessary. The key section reads... Quote, nor shall any state deprive any person of life, liberty, or property without due process of law, nor deny to any person within its jurisdiction the equal protection of laws. Essentially, the 14th Amendment made sure the Bill of Rights applied to everyone, no matter what their state government did. And Paul Rosenberg says that was, in his opinion, a reasonable addition to the Constitution. But the problem with the 14th Amendment wasn't the text itself but that people took it to imply the moral superiority of the national government. And that's a highly questionable assumption. He says, when people talk about states' rights, there's kind of an instinctual objection that never fails to grip people, and that is, well, without central government power, slavery would still exist. He says, the truth, however, is the opposite, and the truth is this. Every branch of the national government of the United States assisted slavery until 1863. 
Did you catch the date there? 1863. You can verify this yourself. Go look up the Fugitive Slave Act of 1850. Look at the Dred Scott decision. By the way, the Dred Scott decision is a good one to pull up anytime someone tells you, well, you know, the Supreme Court ruled that they can force vaccinations if they want to. Well, if the Supreme Court ruled something, I guess we better follow it. Dred Scott, what do you think? <laughs> Sorry, that's, that's a pretty hardcore tactic, but it should make the point. Paul Rosenberg says, while the southern states and national government were supporting slavery, the northern states fought it. They nullified laws supporting slavery. Wisconsin was exemplary in this. The secession resolution of Georgia complained specifically about that, saying, for 20 years, for above 20 years, the non-slaveholding states generally have wholly refused to deliver up to us persons charged with crimes affecting slave property. Northern state officials shield and give sanctuary to all criminals who seek to deprive us of this property. So the northern states were the anti-slavery heroes, not the central government in Washington. And if your school books implied the contrary, guess what? They lied. The next big watershed moment took place in 1913, and that was the 17th Amendment, which took the powers of the states and transferred them to Washington by mandating the popular election of senators. See, previously, senators were elected by the state legislatures, and that gave the states massive power in the central government. It provided a check on the power of the national government. If the states were unhappy with the direction of the national government, well, they could tell their senators, you need to change this. And when, with senators being elected directly by the populace instead of appointed by the states, the states were now cut out of the equation. In their place, political parties gained massive power, and nearly all power was consolidated in the city of Washington. I think the best explanation I've heard to, to add to this is what happened under the 17th Amendment was the, the loyalty or the allegiance of those senators, instead of representing the states that sent them prior to the 17th Amendment, their, leal, their loyalty and allegiance shifted to Washington, D.C. and the federal government. Because all they had to do was get enough of the populace to vote for them. Now, Paul Rosenberg says the argument in favor of the 17th Amendment was that state houses were corrupt and that they acted erratically, sometimes leaving seats vacant for some time. And the truth is that the states were unruly. But this wasn't the crucial issue. The work of the Senate could continue regardless. Respected politicians, however, did not want to be seen as part of a disorderly body. Now, as for corruption in the states, that was often true. But the implied idea that Washington was pristine and remains, <laughs> that's a bad, bad joke. But even now, the moral superiority of the central government is often assumed, probably because many people find comfort trusting in the largest, most powerful thing. But the truth is, power always corrupts. And the structure featuring small but separate pockets of corruption is far less dangerous than one featuring a large single seat of corruption to which all money is gathered. And he goes back to Thomas Jefferson on this one. It's not by the consolidation or concentration of powers, but by their distribution that good government is affected. The government of the United States remains, but it is of a fundamentally different character than the Federal Republic designed by Madison. Yet we all keep saying federal. Not only is this use incorrect, says, uh, says Paul Rosenberg, but it's prevented us from recognizing the crucial fact that the American Federal Republic was stolen from our great-grandparents. This is not just a trivial argument over vocabulary. 
He says deceptions and frauds are accomplished over time by changes in the meanings of words. Now, sometimes this is done purposely. Sometimes it happens because people are more comfortable evading the original meaning. But regardless of how much intent was involved, the meaning of federal changed radically between 1803 and 1917. And Paul Rosenberg says, our current use of the word conveys a completely different meaning than the original. This change of definition has masked the fundamental turning point in the governance of the American people. Now, I like how he ends this by saying, what you do about this, or whether you do anything at all, is entirely your choice. I'm just pointing as best I can to the truth. And he says, I will only add to this, if you call yourself an American, be one. Okay, now that doesn't mean, well, an American would grab his pitchfork and a torch and away he would go. I think it's more along the lines of you would understand the principles and the practices that are at stake and make it your business to really understand them. Come on, we have more resources available to us right now than any generation in history has ever had. Do we make good use of those resources? I mean, come on, the the information of the world is right there at your fingertips. You could be understanding the structures and forms that protect your liberty. Or you could be filling your eyes with porn or cat videos or memes or, you know, some other distraction. It's not that, uh, you know, the principle is no longer applicable because it's just it's not true anymore. That was only good for an agrarian society of, you know, just a few million people. No, the principles are still true and they still work. They, they consist of wisdom, which means they stand the test of time. They're, they're not going to become obsolete like knowledge. But they only work for a people who are fit for freedom. People who understand what freedom is and, and understand the, the principles on which it's predicated. And if we have become lazy, if we've become you know, willing to outsource that to other people, I don't know, career politicians, can you think of anybody who may have been I don't, in, in government for, oh, 47, 48 years? Maybe sits at the, uh, in the White House today. What have these people accomplished? They've done a great job of building themselves little fiefdoms and, you know, increasing their, their net worth. But have they done the job of protecting your God-given rights? I think we know the answer to that question. It's, it's, it's not looking good at least not for them. And the question remains, what will be done? Because right now that consolidation of power has been continuing and in fact increasing because of the COVID crisis. So if you're going to call yourself an American, might as well be one, but being one means you understand your rights, you claim them, use them, and defend them. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. By the way, I want to mention uh, you can become a member. Yes, the membership has its privileges. If you go to my show notes page at thebrianhydeshow.com, you'll find a link you can click on, which will take you into my uh, my membership area of the website. 
Now, I wish I could tell you, you know, I'm going to give you everything in the world and a color TV, but um, you will have access to exclusive content. Uh, if you become a yearly supporter, you can actually uh, get yourself one of my nifty uh, Revel in Wrong Think mugs. Yes, it features my mug on it, but uh, don't let that be a downside. But again, details are there at the website, thebrianhydeshow.com, and I appreciate the support of my listeners. This is largely a listener-supported program, meaning that uh, every person who contributes, whether it's a buck a month or five bucks a month or $10 a month, you are keeping the wolves away from the door and allowing me to do what uh, what I long to do, which is to, to use my time and my influence as wisely as possible. And I want to proclaim that message of liberty and, and of clear and independent thinking in a time where deception is just about universal. Thank you to all who helped me to, to do what I'm, what I'm trying to do here. So as we're talking about federalism, I'm including, of course, the article from Paul Rosenberg that I've been sharing with you thus far. I also am including a terrific debate on states' rights and the relevance of American federalism. And this includes contributions by Abigail Hall, Alexander Salter, and Stephen Kahn. And this is some great stuff. It's more than I can share in this segment, but I'm going to give you a couple of excerpts. Um, this is, uh, this is the, the case of why we still need federalism. And this is a, a combined effort of Abigail Hall and Alexander Salter. They talk about the breakdown of federalism, saying over the last 100 years, we've seen a radical shift in the size and composition of our government. The state-centric, localized governance envisioned by the founders has given way to a nationally dominant behemoth, and as a result, the government is overly centralized and grossly inefficient. But it wasn't always this way. The Constitution takes the existence of the states as a given. In other words, they don't require any legitimization. Instead, the Constitution authorizes the national government to act within a specific and limited domain. It's a beautiful example of political craftsmanship, with state governments and the national government consigned to their proper spheres. Each can curb the potential excesses of the other to the benefit of the citizenry. Now, the Tenth Amendment to the U.S. Constitution makes it abundantly clear that government activity should be as local as possible. As the framers designed our government, powers not expressly granted to the federal government were assumed to rest with the states. Over time, however, we've seen disproportionate growth in the national government's prerogatives. For example, from 1900 to 2012, national government expenditures as a share of economic output grew from 2.7% to over 24%. Over a similar time horizon, state and local government expenditures rose from 9.1 to 14.8%. So this clearly shows the national government eclipsing state and local governments, which is a clear departure from our founding principles. Now, explanations for this lopsided development vary. Some argue that individuals within government, such as politicians and bureaucrats, drive government growth. Others contend that government growth is the result of citizen demand. And still others suggest that crises have played a pivotal role in government, as how, how it ratchets or uh, claims new powers, and, or that new technology causes expansion and centralization. But Alexander Salter and Abigail Hall say in reality it's likely a combination of these things. Whatever the causes, the results are clear. As governance has moved away from more local entities, the federalist approach, to a government more focused at the national level, our government has become unwieldy, 
and ineffective. And this is the point where they, they point out the dangers of states' loss of control, saying inefficiency isn't the only downside of overly centralized government. There's also the degeneration of public discourse into vitriol and rancor. Oh, we've seen a little bit of that, right? Simply put, national politics has become too important. If a political faction loses state or local election, well, that's, there are ways to soften that blow. But losing in Washington can be devastating. And since the states have become so reliant on the national government, losing the national government often means losing control over state policies as well. When nationalism replaces federalism, politics becomes a winner-takes-all tournament. The stakes are just too high. Now, advocates of national control would argue, well, you have it backward. It's decentralization that's the problem. Why have 50 small-scale solutions which may wastefully duplicate policy efforts instead of a coherent, top-down plan? Listen to their answer. They say, this way of thinking is superficially appealing, but it's fatally flawed. By preserving the autonomy of state governments, federalism ensures that local political units produce the public goods and services that can most benefit their communities. For example, what's appropriate for a state with large cities and high population density might not be, might not be for more rural, low-density states. So the national government should limit itself to those activities which are truly in the common interest of the whole country. And when you're talking about a diverse nation of 330 million people, the common interests of all citizens will be few and defined. And here they make the case for the necessity of preserving American federalism. Abigail Hall and Alexander Salter say federalism has several advantages over nationalism. First, in a federal system, individuals can self-sort into communities that match their preferences for taxes and public output. Now, some localities with higher taxes and more generous public services, some would prefer that, rather. Others would trade a lower tax bill for fewer public services. By returning power to the states, the people can choose the style of governance that best works for them. Second, a federalist system has built-in feedback mechanisms for good governance, which centralization inadvertently destroys. In a federal regime, citizens can vote with their feet. Well, you see a lot of that going on right now, even though we don't have much federalism these days. How many people are fleeing states like New York, California, Illinois? Witness the exodus from bloated, unresponsive local governments. That's when people choose to move. I think the lockdowns have actually prompted a lot of people to pack up and go. Leaving high-tax, high-regulation states like California and New York to freer states like Florida and Texas. Well-governed localities attract citizens. They enjoy higher tax revenues. Poorly governed localities drive out their citizens and suffer dwindling revenues. I think Illinois really got a lesson in this one. Businesses begin to abandon them by the droves. Why? Well, because their taxes were too high. And this provides valuable information to local political authorities. Nationalism, however, destroys this feedback loop because it's so much harder to move to a new country than it is to pack up and move to a new state. Although I understand that uh, anybody who's tried to to rent a U-Haul truck in California is finding it uh, either extremely expensive or nearly impossible. It's not uncommon for people to actually rent a U-Haul in Vegas, drive it to California, and then move wherever they're going to move. Yeah, something's not right. 
In the language of constitutional political economy, the branch of economics that studies how political rules are made, we want to empower the protective and productive state while constraining the predatory state. Federalism is what helps achieve this. Only if states are meaningfully independent of Washington, D.C., can they serve as a check on national overreach. Unfortunately, with each passing year, the prerogatives of state governments fall by the wayside. And this makes Americans poorer and less free and will further engender political polarization. Now, they talk about saving the American experiment, pointing out that federalism is a crucial part of American constitutional design. In other words, America wouldn't be America without it. And much of what's wrong with contemporary politics is caused by nationalism run amok. Federalism helps solve the basic paradox of government, as James Madison famously wrote in Federalist 51. In framing a government which, must, which is to be administered by men over men, the great difficulty lies in this. You must first enable the government to control the governed, and in the next place, oblige it to control itself. Now, we want the, good, we want the government to shield citizens from foreign and domestic aggression and to produce important collective goods like the interstate highway system. But we don't want the government to prey on its citizens, as occurs when special interest groups use the political process to enrich themselves at the expense of taxpayers. So federalism is in our political DNA. We fail to uphold the American experiment if we allow state governments to devolve into mere administrative uh, conveniences of the national government. By embracing federalism, we can be governed without being ruled. It's high time we restored state governments to their rightful place in our constitutional order. So say Abigail Hall and Alexander Salter. Yep, there's a link in the show notes. You can check it out for yourself at the BrianHydeShow.com. And thanks again for being a wrong thinker. This is The Brian Hyde Show.